Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me a man who defies labels, but is well known within the greater Portland and Maine region for many creative pursuits. This is Jack Soley. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. So I think, you know, when I look down through all of the things that you've done in your life, I can understand why you don't want to be limited to being labeled in one specific way, because you have a lot of interests and you've done a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think I have a lot of passion for um, many things, and I I, um, I treat life as, as sort of one long continuum rather than... Um, Having a specific professional pursuit, for instance, it just it's many things fit into that continuum. So I try not to I try not to think of um, segregate my life between, for instance, my swimming or my or my development, my my um, real estate development or my work with nonprofits or instructing an outward bound, whatever it may be. It's all part of the long process. So for you, what? It has risen to the top over the course of your life. That's an easy one, actually. So my work with Outward Bound um, clearly has risen to the top. So I, um, I actually discovered Outward Bound when I was fifteen. I was I grew up in Camden and Mid Coast, and um, was in a small boat with a friend of mine um, heading out to Swan's Island. Got caught in a horrific storm. Spent the night bailing the boat, and in the morning we drifted sixteen miles off course into Hurricane Island. And that's how I discovered Outward Bound, went back the next summer and took a course and knew that that was something that would be with me the rest of my life. Um, and then so literally the day after I graduated from college, went back, did a staff training um, with Hurricane Island Outward Bound and remained you know, with the program while I was pursuing other things um, for 14 years. And then... Um, had a kid, and so my daughter was born, had to leave the school because I wanted to spend time with my daughter, um, but then rejoined. My daughter just graduated from college, so found that it was a good, it was like the nexus point to actually rejoin the school. So three years ago, I rejoined. Um, I wanted to rejoin simply as a staff member, but they said they wouldn't have me as a staff member unless I came as a trustee as well. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the ultimatum. Um, so I rejoined and then actually refounded the, um, with lots of help, the uh, sea kayaking program, which had been defunct for 20 years. And uh, so I've been training staff and, um, and teaching courses um, for these last three or four years. Actually, took a year off because of COVID, of course. So, yeah, that by far is the thing that I always think when I'm most proud of the various things I've done in my life, for sure. And I know that. Our, one of our artists at Portland Art Gallery, Cooper Dragonet, has an Outward Bound connection. Do you know Cooper through Outward Bound? Yeah, so Cooper and I, um, we were co-instructors on a sea kayaking course many, many years ago and became fast friends. Um, Outward Bound courses are extraordinarily intense and intimate, and it's sort of like group therapy in a very stressful outdoor environment, um, and we intentionally create that stress by putting our students in very uncomfortable situations um, environmentally as well as um, psychically and and just pulling things out from them and so Cooper and I had a really wonderful course together and so we've been friends since I think that was probably sometime in probably the earlier mid 90s I've lost track since then 
So that simultaneously sounds intriguing and also a little terrifying. The idea that you're helping people to do things that they uh, don't feel comfortable with, but they're learning a lot about themselves at the same time. Do those things have to necessarily coexist? Uh, well, I think, and when I say, when you say other people, it's for myself as well. So putting myself in situations where I am at least mildly uncomfortable, and whether it's on an outward bound course, or the real estate development projects that I do, or any of the many pursuits in my life, um, I, I think that's where the most, you know, potential for growth is in that, you know, in, in the, the uh, tried and true expression outward bound is pushing our comfort zone. But when we push beyond where our, where we believe our physical or mental limits are, I think is where the ground is ripe for, for lessons, for wisdom and for growth. And so that's, that's what I've always felt. And so, yeah, it's, it's, at times, it's more uncomfortable than I would like it to be, certainly. And I, I in an Outward Bound courses, I've put myself in those positions and, and certainly had um, paid the consequences for that because things are not always, you can't plan these things. They just, they, they, they happen organically. And, um, and you can't plan somebody's response to be putting a situation that they're very uncomfortable with. And that could be, again, environmental response, environmental situation, meaning it's a, we're in a, you know, high wind offshore, trying to get back to an island, or we're in a group circle, having a chat about some deeply personal situation that they have gone through in their life. But all of those situations, I think it's important to, um, to actually put yourself there and to, you know, let your guard down and, and perhaps, you know, put the ego aside and and get to the core of, of what it is that makes us human. It's interesting for me to hear you talk about people who are willingly, and including yourself, putting themselves in places of discomfort, when I think that that's not as common a thing for many people as Outward Bound might suggest. You know, I, I, I mean, I work in the healthcare field. Most people come to see me because they don't want discomfort and they're trying to avoid it. So... What is it about discomfort that somehow continues to be a draw? Yeah, so, um, yeah, and I'm also an EMT as well as I volunteer as an EMT on an ambulance occasionally. So so should I ask you what you don't do? Would that be a shorter <laughs> list maybe or? Um, well, unfortunately, I have a very um, uh, robust intellectual curiosity that gets me into many situations that I wish I could extract myself from at times. Um but I think, back to your question, I think the important thing is that when we are in a place that is unfamiliar ground to us, then the walls that we typically put up, the barriers, I think are, are not, we don't have as easy access to that, that sort of defensive mechanism that we normally would have. And so again, that I think is where we have growth. Um, for instance, um, you know, many of the other things I do, I, whether it's ultra marathon, long distance swimming, it's, I put myself in a place that is extraordinarily uncomfortable. And then I see how I respond, how I react to that situation. And, and that's not, it's not something again, that you can, you can create a playbook for it, it happens and you work through it. And I think in that process of working through things is where you find 
you know, what the true, whether it's folks call it the true metal of, of a human, but to me, it's, it's, um, it's how you respond to these things is, is how you respond in life. It's how you, how you navigate your way through this challenging path of life. So, yeah. And I, I, um, I, I believe it's important to continually take yourself out of that place that, that whatever it is that brings you, um, into a place of, of sort of constant calm and put yourself into a place that will, you know, bring you beyond where you have a level of comfort. So if that answers your question, it's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I think there's growth there. So let's try it. <laughs> let's do it. Well, I, and I think, I mean, I think the idea in Buddhism is that life is suffering and it's not something we can avoid. So what you're saying is if we can't avoid the suffering, then how do we understand ourselves better through suffering and how do we learn and how do we interact differently with the world? Yeah. And so yeah, in, in, in Buddhist theology, I mean, sometimes suffering is, um, I think to me, it's almost elevated as a worthy cause. And I'm not necessarily saying we should suffer other than sort of to drop the id, the ego, the sense of who we are, and to instead to instill ourselves with the potential for all of these other areas of growth that we wouldn't necessarily have opportunities for. Because we wake up in a day, we have a routine, we go through the day and we sort of know what we want to do. We have our goals and expectations. And then when a curveball comes, you know, we instantly, there's this almost a reactive, you know, impulse that we don't feel comfortable to that. And so we'll try to redirect. And I say, well, I invite that. And it's not necessarily for the suffering, but it's, it's to, um, again, it's an area of, if, if it's an area where I can somehow expand my understanding of who I am and of the world, then that's where I will go. Not all the time, because that makes chaos. <laughs> but just allowing that opportunity certainly is, is, is um, I think, you know, it behooves all of us at some time in our life when, we're, when we can bring that into our lives, that discomfort. Well, I think as you're talking, I'm thinking it's a very kind of meta concept that you're observing yourself through a state of discomfort and how you react and what you can learn from it and maybe what you can apply moving forward. So it's almost a kind of a practicing that you're engaging in. Yeah. Um, you know, I had several majors in college and one of them in fact was theology. And, um, and so practice, I, I, I wish I had, I wish there was enough clarity to actually consider it a practice. Um, but certainly there is a, there's a path I've chosen and that path invites that discomfort at different times. And, you know, I mean, I'm uh, right now I'm developing workforce housing, which is extraordinarily challenging and 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 probably, um, you know, the least remunerative manner of developing I could have chosen. Um, I've been in the real estate sphere for a long time and I could certainly, you know, make a lot of money doing something else. But um, workforce housing is uh, more rewarding in terms of um the client base and it's rewarding in terms of trying to pioneer a new type of development and so i i um you know i'm i'm have the good fortune to be at a 
place of, of relative financial comfort where I can make that decision, of course. Um, but, but certainly I'm putting a lot at risk to do this. And, and again, I think it's, I think the reward, hopefully, um, in terms of personal growth, in terms of professional growth, in terms of seeing folks, you know, realize hopefully the benefit of, of that, um, I think is important to all of us in my community, especially. What was it that got you to the place where you thought you wanted to focus on workforce housing? Well, again, focus is a is a loaded term for me because I'm I'm focused on many things right now. But it's it's one of the pursuits. Um, so, you know, I sort of by accident got into real estate. Um, one of my brothers um, asked me to be involved in an equity position in real estate um, back in the late '80s. Um, before the first great crash in recent memory. And, um, and I, uh, real estate was probably the furthest thing from my mind at the time. I think I was, um, I was uh, teaching at King Middle School, um, Youth at Risk, and working in Outward Bound courses, and was designing furniture. Um, I think that was um, my thesis in school was modern furniture design. Um, and so I... Um, got into real estate sort of begrudgingly, I would say, and through the course of many years realized that it was one thing that gave me the freedom to do many other things that I wanted to pursue and um, led me over a bunch of years to the planning board for the city of Portland. I was on the planning board for several years and um, many projects came across my desk when I was on the planning board. Um, but they were all market rate housing. And there was this large cry for, you know, the housing crisis and affordable housing, and then this missing middle, the, the, um, the idea that, that there is subsidized housing for affordable housing, and the subsidies come from the municipal, the state, the federal level. There's, of course, market rate housing, which is, um, you know, all other housing is expensive housing in, the, in, in Maine at this point, certainly in southern Maine. But the middle, the housing for um, school teachers, police officers, firemen, everyone in the restaurant industry, um, there literally was no housing in the city of Portland or, or there was a limited amount of housing for folks like that that, that didn't qualify for the subsidies and couldn't afford the market rate housing. And so as I was at the planning board and there was a lot of discussion on the state level and municipal level about this missing middle and the workforce housing. Nobody was doing anything about it. And it was extraordinarily frustrating to me. And so the city of Portland um, put out an RFP for some Bayside properties. They were interested in creating workforce housing. And so I um, had stepped down from the planning board and I decided to respond to that RFP and put a proposal in um, to build 23 condos for workforce housing. And workforce housing is defined nationally as between 100 and 120% of area median income. Um, so in the city of Portland, area median income is roughly, say, $75,000, $78,000. So at 120%, roughly $80,000, $90,000, you take a third of your income, and that's what you can sustainably afford for housing. So I decided to try to build condos that were affordable. And what that meant under those guidelines was around two hundred and fifteen dollars to 
Well, that was 2017 that we put in the RFP. And of course, you know, the, the cost of construction, it's only gone up, but it was certainly high then. Um, and I said, how in the heck can I make condos for $215,000, even though the land cost was uh, was not full value? The city ended up sell, selling me the land for, you know, for maybe 15, 20% under value. Um, and so the solution after sort of casting about for a while was to create micro housing, um, very small units. And so the project, and not only that, but to create some market rate units in the same complex that would then subsidize the workforce housing. Because I understood that I the margins on the workforce housing were going to be little to none. And so the only way to do it without any subsidies was to actually have some profitable housing in the same complex that would subsidize the rest of the housing. And so we built Paris Terraces. It was sold out um, well before we got our certificate of occupancy. Um, 23 units altogether, three were market rate, 20 were workforce. And it created a what I would consider an extremely healthy community because it was a mixed income community all in the same building. And it, it allowed people that wanted to remain in the city of Portland. I mean, workforce housing, frankly, at that point was, was called Bitterford or Westbrook if you lived in Portland. I mean, there wasn't, wasn't enough housing, wasn't enough affordable housing. And so people were having to move far afield to continue to work in the restaurant business in Portland, for instance. We had, I think, of those 20 um, workforce housing units, 17 were first-time homeowners. And these were folks that had no opportunities to purchase other homes in Portland. And up until that point, I had built a bunch of high-end market-rate condos in Portland. I had built a wide variety of housing. And... Um, and at those closings, it was typical that I would be across the desk, across the table from a lawyer who would be representative of the person who was actually buying the property. I might never actually meet the owner. At these closings for Paris Terraces or Workforce Housing closings, for the first time, I actually met the homeowners. And they were more emotionally invested than I had thought they would be. And at these closings, I was getting hugs. There were people crying. There were at, because it was their opportunity. I mean, in America, our the most important investment we'll make in our life is usually our home. And and they were closed out from that opportunity. And all of a sudden, Paris Terraces allowed them to do that. And so there was no lawyers at the closing, right? That's actually all three work, all three market rate housing did have lawyers, <laughs> which was, which, which again reinforced this idea that I really would like to see the homeowner. I wanted to see the people that would be buying these these units, and so, so that that was for me. That was you know that was the closer. That was the done deal, and this was something I wanted to pursue. Um, and so the question was how to do that efficiently because my life is full with many other things and and how to do that um, affordably to me because again there's just there's no margins on the workforce housing until there are subsidies there's ld 2003 it's a state legislation a state um, 
a law that if it goes into effect, there will be for the first time subsidies for workforce housing, but there still are not to this day. Um, and so I made a call to Dana Topman, who at the time was running Avesta Housing, and said, Dana, I would like to create a community where we can see the full cross-section of America in the same community. So we'll create some affordable housing, which he will do through low-income tax credits, main state housing. I'll do some workforce, workforce housing, and I'll do some market-rate housing all in the same campus. And he or his board or all of them liked the idea enough that they agreed, and we put an RFP in um, for another piece of land in the city of Portland. Unfortunately, we were the runner-up. We didn't, we didn't actually receive that. Um, and unfortunately, that was over three years ago. Nothing has been built on that property to this day. So, um, and that's frustrating to all, all of us who are housing advocates. Um, but instead, I was able to find a similar three and a quarter acre piece of land in Westbrook. And we will, after two years of going through entitlements, we will be breaking ground in July, possibly early August, um, and we'll be building a total of roughly 198 units on that site. And it will include um, subsidized 55 plus housing from Avesta, my company, and I've partnered with a gentleman named Tim Hebert, who owns Hebert Construction, um, which is a fourth generation contractor in the state. And so Tim and I are going to be building market rate housing as well as workforce housing on that site. Um, and we also built another project in Scarborough at the former fire police station where we built um, Avesta's building um, 31 units of 55 plus subsidized housing. So that's, um, that's the direction I'm heading right now. And we're actually looking at five more sites um, as I speak today. <laughs> so um, it's, we're gaining momentum. And, and um, as a result, you know, a lot of other municipalities are actually calling and asking if we can do similar projects in their towns. So extraordinarily exciting. Um, I just need to find out a way to make money. <laughs> and I think really the only way to do that is to subsidize in-house, is to create market rate housing as a component of the bigger picture. And, and I think that's what we need to do today is we need to say, I'm going to be creating some housing that perhaps has low to no margin. But on the other end, on the back end, I'll create some other housing that will pay for all of this and for my time and energy. And because ultimately we're all capitalists and we need to figure out a way to make it work. And I think we have a model that is successful at this point. So long-winded answer to your question, um, but that's, that's, that's one of the places I'm spending a lot of my energy right now. Well, I appreciate you're doing that because working in healthcare, you know, one of the things that we struggle with, and I work for a system that's up in the Augusta Waterville area, is even in that area, we're having a hard time bringing people in that can actually find places to live. And so we can't, we can't get nurses to come stay. We can't get um, physical therapists, you know. And so I think that what you're describing is very real, and it, I think it's a very real issue even in the non-urban parts of Maine. Very much so. And so we're looking as far afield as Lewiston and Augusta. And I have had conversations with Maine Medical Center because they own a tremendous amount of land. And I'm hopeful that at some point they'll make decisions about that land and we could build workforce housing. If even only for the folks within Maine Medical Center with their own community. But again, there are, there are people that cannot afford 
housing in the Portland area that want to live and work in the Portland area. And so the medical industry is one prime example, but we're getting calls from a lot of other industries and saying, we have land, can you do this? Uh, you know, I, I've got a call from a, a large, the, the uh, city manager of a community in Southern Maine who said, we own lots of land. Can you come down and build workforce housing for us? I said, I'd love to, but I have a lot on my plate right now. And, you know, we'll look at it. And so there was a lot of things on the back burner at this point. But yes, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that hospitals, the medical industry will step up and say that they will, you know, help to create this housing for, for their own employees, really for the sake of their own employees, and um, which will create a healthier community overall. So it's, it's just, a, it's, I, I think there has been a dependency on subsidies and, and um, folks looking towards, you know, whether it's at the state, municipal, federal level to someone else to step in. And again, when I was on the planning board, I got tired of people talking about it, frankly, and talking about these subsidies and what could happen and said, there's got to be a better, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so that's where we are. So uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful LD 2003 will create, will help create a change. And, but I, I, I do think that there has to be some element of, I'm not even sure if it's altruism, but certainly um, it's, this is what's best for the community and we have to find people that will just, will jump in and do what's right at some point. On a different topic, tell me about your interest in art. <laughs> so um, as, a, uh, as I mentioned, I did a thesis on furniture design um, and in college. And so I have had a, um, long interest in art. My stepmother um, was an artist and spent my childhood going from Maine down to down to the city, down to New York and Soho and meeting her various art, art, art friends, artistic friends. And um, so when my daughter was born, um, so I tried to do the furniture design route and it was, um, it's pretty exclusive and generally challenging place to get involved. It's often Italian designers that will come to the States and work. Um, but when my daughter was born in 2000, I realized that I wanted to be able to stay home with my daughter as much as possible. And so I, um, I had some ideas for some products. And so I started doing product design. And, you know, I had the good fortune of being able to license over 90 products over the next eight years and stay home and work from my kayak um, when, <laughs> when my daughter was you know, off at, at um with her mom or daycare or somewhere else, I would be designing on the deck of my kayak. And then I had a little prototype shop back then and ended up um, designing products for many different industries and had the good fortune of them selling in, in quite large numbers. Um, so um, it provided enough revenue for a bunch of years and royalties for years after, in fact. So I went from that um, to, um, I'd been collecting art you know, at a very sort of local level for a long time and was always fascinated with sort of, um, I had, Moby Dick was always one of my favorite stories and then, and so loved the illustration and so decided to, you know, if I could purchase a Rockwell Kent, you know, written, I was able to find um, someone who actually had many of the original Rockwell Kent drawings and so um, and started purchasing those. Um, but it's been sort of a lifelong pursuit that then um, 
you know, between the design work I did and, and it's, it's interesting when people always ask, you know, how were you successful designing products? Cause, and I said, well, I, the one thing I didn't do is I, I didn't indulge in blue sky thinking. So what I would, I would find relatively small companies that had revenue between five and 50 million that were based in Maine that I could actually have access to the owner or president of the company. And I would find a niche in their catalog, in their, you know, in their offerings that I thought were, they were missing. And so I designed a product. So I ended up designing a whole category of in-window bird feeders, though I knew nothing about birds. <laughs> and that sold sensationally well. Um, at one point, I think I had a product in every national retail catalog in the country, you know, from L.O.B. and the Plow and Hearth, the Front Gate, to Sharper Image and... And that was a huge amount of fun and satisfaction. They ended up getting from there into the toy industry, designing a lot of wooden kit toys. And many museums in the country would carry them because they were they were fun toys that kids could put together. And then um, and also in the outdoor industry, I designed some things such as a radar reflecting life jacket, um, which then I licensed to the U.S. government, actually, um, for the Navy. Um, so that sort of that interest in design and invention, frankly, um, sort of led me into many other avenues that ultimately brought me to the PMA, to Portland Museum, um, where I, where I um, spent a bunch of time just because I loved, you know, looking at art. And um, Mark Basier called one day and asked if I was interested in becoming a trustee. Um, and so that has been a very fruitful relationship in terms of my access to curators. Um, but of course, we're building a massive addition. And so I'm also the chair of the Building and Grounds Committee. And so I've taken an active role in the, um, in the visioning of that next step. And so um, it, that's been an incredibly rewarding process. And so it's only brought me closer to the art community. And so I'm I'm, I'm still a piece of that. I should also mention that I was also the chair of the Portland Public Art Committee for many years, um, which also put me in contact. And then as part of this, my association with a company named East Brown Cow, I have been populating buildings um, now with my nephew with art, so in public spaces. And so that I've been purchasing local art for many years um, you know, for those spaces. And that's been really wonderful. That's been a great opportunity. And like, if you walk into Canal Plaza, you will see Wooly Hildreth's, um, her wonderful meanderings. It's the title of some of her work. And you'll see those, or you'll see Shoshana White or Tanya Hollander in, in, the, um, in, the, Hyatt region, in the Hyatt Place Hotel on 4th Street. I think we purchased, you know, 417 photographs from Tanya Hollander, who's a local artist. So um, incredibly time consuming, but um, rewarding in many ways. That was the first Hyatt in the country that had exclusively local art. And so we had to get special permission um, from Hyatt National for that honor. So um, it's been it's been a great process. And, um, and I still, you know, the collecting piece is obviously a very privileged, you know, position to be in. And so I, I am, you know, ultimately hoping that the collection I put together will then go to a museum at some point and it will become, you know, back in the public domain, which is ultimately, I think, what, what we should do with art, you know, or, or art that is appreciated by, um, by the greater public.
And when you're doing the work on workforce housing, I mean, are you are you thinking about this sort of artistic side of things and the importance of bringing beauty really to everyone? Very much so. And so um, uh, we worked with Kaplan Thompson on Paris Terraces, and um, I, I have um, that has actually the it's not simply the integrity of the project; it's the design of the project. So when I say integrity. I want to build passive house standard, incredibly efficient units. We typically build 450 to 500 square foot units that cost, you know, utility cost is around 50 to $75 a month for heat and air and cooking and everything. Um, So incredibly efficient, but I think it is important. We are creating a legacy of properties. So when you construct a building and it becomes part of, the public domain for the next 50 or 100 years, I think that environment that we are building, it's important that we consider how it impacts our community. And the mediocrity, I'll be very candid about it, that I have seen the construction of the city of Portland detracts tremendously from what has drawn us all to the city of Portland. And it's incredibly frustrating to me. And so I think it is incumbent upon every developer to put extraordinary effort into what we actually, what we're, what we're creating for design. The project I'm doing in Westbrook um, with Avesta and Tim Hebert is we're working with Scott Simons Architects, um, and it's the first time that they have done a residential project that's not of higher education, some dormitories. And so new ground for them, but they have a design aesthetic that I tremendously appreciate and respect. Um, I, I could certainly have picked an architect that would have cost me a lot less per unit, but ultimately that's that's part of the integrity of the project. And so it's... I. I go up and down Franklin Street on a daily basis and I see the new project and it's I'm I'm thankful that we have another 55 plus low income project in Portland. And I look at that building and I think it's almost criminal that that is in the public way that 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 building, if you've seen it, it's it's um, I I feel like it's almost disrespectful to us that that inhabit this place when we look at this building and it. It is um, the the design of it is 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 not in keeping with what we would hope our built environment would look like, and I think that's incredibly important. Um, so I push whatever architect we work with. I push them hard, um, and I think they enjoy that. Frankly, I mean, I, I think it's we're working on a project on the West End right now with David Lloyd, who's incredibly talented, and so we've I think we're on our fifth iteration now for some townhomes and, um, and, you know, I can see some frustration coming out of him, (laughs) but, um, but I think ultimately, I think we'll all be proud of the project that is created. So yes, absolutely. Design is, is incredibly important. People feel proud of their home when they like what it looks like, you know, and, and, and people don't want to look and, you know, it's, it's almost like a, um, uh, affordable housing in the States versus if you go to Holland or other places in the world, like it's, it's celebrated. And in the States, there's something like, we just need to get it built and we don't care what it looks like. And, and, uh, that's really unfortunate to me. So I hope that answers your question. Yes. Yeah, so you're changing that. 
Well, I'm, I can only affect myself, but hopefully setting a model for others um, to look at and, and by creating entire communities. And again, with Avesta's help, I mean, that's with partnering with Avesta on a site um, that, you know, they have the same, they have the same motivations I do, which is to create a healthy community. And when we say healthy community, that means it's not just a cross-section socioeconomically, but it's a community that, again, that we all can take pride in. We return at the end of the day and we say, this is a place of wonder. It's a place of, of, of um, beauty. And I think that's really important to everybody. I think we all appreciate it. We just, we forget that in the process. And right now, construction costs are over $300 a square foot. It's easy to forget. In fact, it's usually the thing that we call, you know, value engineer. We, we exit out. We're like, you know, we can't afford to do that. And, and I say, yeah, you can. You just need to spend more time and energy figuring out how to get there. So important to me. Jack, it has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your coming in today. Well, I appreciate you having me. And, um, and I, I um, look forward to getting responses and, and having this dialogue about workforce housing moving forward and seeing what other people can bring to the table. So thank you very much. Well, you've heard it from Jack Soley. He's interested in hearing responses to the workforce housing and our conversation. So please do reach out to him with your thoughts, because I agree this is certainly a noble cause. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial. You have been listening to or watching Radio Maine today with me in the studio, Jack Soley. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you.